Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you this morning. It always feels kind of like coming home when we come up to Ramona. Um, I want to just give a little update about some things going on this week with the ministry with El Fado. Thank you for praying for us this month. Uh, it's been a busy week. Uh, there's been a, a lot going on in Cuba, and we've been responding to that uh, with the radio program. Uh, last Sunday night, when a lot of churches were gathering for worship, a tornado struck Havana. Not a hurricane, but a tornado, which is pretty out of the ordinary. Uh, it started in one section of town and really cut through a big swath of the city. Uh, a lot of the church members that were at church worshiping came home to find they didn't have a home anymore. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm from Kansas, so I think, okay, was it an EF4, EF5? I mean, it was a very sm- a small tornado by as far as its strength, but... As you can imagine, with just the deterioration in the city and the rundown buildings, I mean, it was a big impact. So what we've done is uh, had a busy week gathering testimonies, a lot of late nights putting everything together, and we were able to put together a replacement program that aired on Friday, then it's going to air through the rest of next week. And what we did is we were able to share testimonies of people who were really miraculously saved from the tornado, and then also highlight what the church is doing uh, in response. There's been a lot of tension there with... Uh, who's allowed to do what as far as aid, Um, but we've been able to pray for the churches we know being involved in that, and uh, the government's actually, in some ways, has been difficult to to work with that, but on the other hand, um, there have been some interesting things happen, Um, just God working in in people's hearts to let aid through and to cooperate in efforts. We'd appreciate your prayer for that. Uh, I don't want to take too much time with this, but I have to tell you the, the one story that just brought us to tears when we heard it, Um, and, you know, thinking about the power of prayer, we pray so much during our service. Uh, There was this uh, couple of friends, uh, Lila and Carmen, an older couple, I have a picture of them, and they were in the fifth story of an apartment complex in Havana, and they should have, they were going to go to church, but they knew that something was brewing, and they were nervous, and so Carmen called up Lila and said, hey, can you come over, because I'm scared, and so she comes over, and they're in the top floor of this apartment complex, when they feel it start to sway, and they hear the sound that everyone described like an airplane, we usually say a train, you know, um, and then the windows blew out, and you know, the tornado just hit this, this, this building. So they're praying and crying out to the Lord, and the recording, I mean, she starts yelling, like crying out to the Lord like they were, uh, when the roof gets taken off of this fifth-story apartment complex. And she says, our only roof was the sky. And in that moment, Lila starts praying, Lord, thank you, because you can see us, and you're protecting us. So it's, it's amazing to hear the story. They sound like really good friends, um, and they're just such a sweet testimony of, you know, grace and protection. And we're able to share that, you know, on, on the radio with um, people across the island who would never have known that story. So thank you for your prayers. It really is uh, making an impact, and uh, we're just excited to be a part of it. But now turning to God's Word, we're going to look at uh, Genesis 4. So if you'd open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, it's not in the bulletin because it's such a long reading, and that usually happens with these Old Testament stories. Uh, We're actually only going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning. Verses 1 through 16. So I invite you, if you have the passage, um, you know, why don't we remain seated because it's a little long. So let's remain seated. I'll read the passage and we'll pray. This is God's word. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's end the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now asking that you would open this passage up to us, Lord, and show us us the way of Cain, as Jude puts it. Show us the the spirit of Cain, the selfishness, the, the sin, Lord, that even we wrestle with as your people, and we wrestle with the effects of that in this world. And I pray that as we see this and as we think about this, Lord, that we would also see the sprinkled blood of Christ that speaks a better word, Lord. I pray that you would be uh, just pleased to open our hearts to see wonderful things in your word this morning. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Through euthanasia, doctors now cause a quarter of all Dutch deaths. That was a headline I read a couple of weeks ago. Just It was staggering to see. Uh, lethal injections, terminal sedation, artificial comas. Uh, and this report comes on the heels of the news out of New York in the past couple of weeks. Abortion up to the point of birth legalized in New York at the discretion of doctors for emotional, physical, and financial well-being. Some of the reasons given. Met with applause. I'm sure you saw the story. Landmarks bathed in this euphemistic pink light. Uh, One state governor more recently hypothesizing about what level of comfort and rights should be afforded to babies after a botched abortion while decisions are made, discussions are had. Last Sunday was Holocaust Memorial Day. You can go to Yad Vashem in Israel and walk in this one section of the, the National Museum and there's this plexiglass walkway. And as you walk, you can look down and under your feet, you see hundreds of shoes, even little baby sized shoes. Uh, discarded after mass executions of Jews and others in the gas chambers. This is the first Sunday of Black History Month. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Mariana and I were in um, the Alondiga Museum in Guanajuato, Mexico, and there's this chilling mural as you go in the main stairwell that shows the just the, the dark intersection of so-called Christianity and the slave-holding cargo holds when African slaves were brought over for the silver mining 
in, in the region by the supposedly Christian conquistadors bearing the cross. In Cuba last month when we were there, we visited Valle de Ingenios, where you can climb a, a 150-foot tower that's still standing that was built to oversee the 30,000 African slaves laboring in the sugarcane uh, mills. And that's not even to mention our own country's horrific history in that regard, a history that's far more recent and even present than we like to admit sometimes and remember. So I found myself, maybe like you, seeing all of this. We've, we've mentioned it, we've prayed for it this morning, but I've been thinking, like, what is a believer to do? You know, what am I supposed to do? How do I make sense of this? What are we supposed to do with it? Well, there's a lot of things we might do. There's a lot of things we should do. But in order to make sense out of everything we're seeing unfold, and to think rightly about how to fulfill our Christian calling in the face of evil, injustice, murder, we have to understand how we got here and what lies at the root of this wickedness. And we can't see all of these things as something that's just out there. But it's something that's a really and truly in here. Bloodshed isn't just a them problem. It's a me problem. And the answer to that problem, the wonderful, redeeming answer to that problem is the redemption found in the good news of Jesus. Genesis 4 is an important place for us to wrestle through some of these things. Because the sun, in this story, the sun is barely set on the fall of mankind into sin. What we see is that what happened in the garden really did ruin everything right to the core. Mankind had tried to topple God's throne. And in our attempt to become wise, what happened? We became wicked, helpless, self-serving, lost. But even in these earliest pages of Scripture, there are hints and, and shadowy echoes of redemption to come. And what God would do to make the unjust righteous and to right all of the injustices in this world. So we're going to look at the problem in this passage together. Uh, the problem in this passage is what we'll call the selfish spirit of Cain. We're going to spend most of our time unpacking that. And then as we prepare our hearts to celebrate this table this morning, we're going to see the solution. And the solution is really the selfless sprinkled blood. That's the phrase, the sprinkled blood. Uh, That's the phrase that the New Testament gives us for, the, for the, the word of the gospel that Christ speaks, that his death speaks to Cain's like us, to Cain's all around us, that word of grace found in his sacrifice. So we're going to look at the problem first, which is the selfish spirit of Cain, and then God's solution, which is the selfless sprinkled blood. So first, the selfish spirit of Cain. So read Genesis 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. The story opens with hope, right? It opens with faith in the Lord. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived... And bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Maybe you remember in Genesis 3, Adam renamed his wife Eve, right? Because she would be the mother of all living. This act of renaming her was an act of faith in the promise of Genesis 3.15, that there would come a rescuer. And that faith is growing. It's carried on as the family begins to grow. Eve has faith that God's promised deliverer will come. Humanity is being carried forward by God's grace, and there will come a deliverer. And we see in the story at the very beginning that the faith has been passed on to the family. This first story after the garden starts with family worship, you could say. But it quickly unravels into this faithless wickedness that we see in, in what we'll call the, the selfish spirit of Cain. Three things about the selfish spirit of Cain that we'll look at. Uh, first, the selfish spirit of Cain just wants to save face. 
We see this in verse 2. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So here we have the first recorded sacrificial worship in, in all of Scripture. And we have to admit, there's a lot that we don't know. We, there's a lot we don't know about some of the details here. Uh, what had God instructed them about the nature of the offerings they were to bring? Uh, were certain kinds of offerings to be brought? And were it to be in a certain place that they offered their, their gifts? How, how often? In what way were they to do this? And we really don't know, but we can fill in some of the blanks by paying attention to what we learn later in Scripture about sacrifices and offerings. Some have made a big deal about Abel bringing a blood sacrifice versus Cain's offering of produce, probably grain that he had harvested. Uh, but we find later in Scripture that a grain offering, it is an acceptable offering to bring to the Lord. The kind of offering brought doesn't seem to be the main problem here with God's accepting Abel's offering by rejecting Cain's offering. In fact, we get a little clue when we see that the text says God accepted Abel and his offering, but he rejected Cain and his offering. It's not about the gift, but it's something going on with the giver. Another hint of what's going on here could be in, in what's said about Abel's gift and what's left out about Cain's gift. It says that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, the firstborn, the fat portions, the, the, the best of the best, right? Abel offered the very best, yet all we hear about Cain's offering is that it was an offering of the fruit of the ground. So what's the real bottom line here? Do we know why God accepted Abel and rejected Cain? Well, it's not so much about the gift, it's about the heart of the giver. And Hebrews 11 tells us that that's what the real issue was. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So here's the real heart of the problem. Abel offered his gift with saving faith. See, that's why he's included in the, the great cloud of witnesses of Hebrews 11. They were all testifying to faith in the Messiah, faith in the promised one to come. But Cain just offered his gift to save face. I think Calvin really puts his finger on the problem when he says... It is not to be doubted that Cain conducted himself as hypocrites are accustomed to do. Namely, that he wished to appease God as one paying a debt by external sacrifices without the least intention of dedicating himself to God. So do you see what he's saying here? Cain, for Cain, this is just a business transaction. It's legalism. It's the desire to do something right with the hopes of being in the right with God. It's checking off all of the right boxes. It's saving face. It's looking holy. It's, it's the way of the hypocrite. That's what legalism does. It's a self-justification effort. It's a self-justification project. It shows no concern over digging down into the heart of the problem. He has no interest in finding out why God has a problem with his worship. As the story unfolds, we'll see that this legalistic, self-justifying, face-saving worship is the selfish spirit of Cain. Like Matthew Henry reminds us, the tax collector and the Pharisee, in Jesus' story and Luke, they both went to the temple to pray, but only one went away justified. 
this aspect of the selfish spirit of Cain can subtly and sometimes not so subtly creep up in our own hearts. Remembering all of the insane amount of wickedness that we've been seeing as we read the news or scroll through social media these past few weeks, it's so easy to start giving gifts like Cain or to start praying like the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Slave traders, Nazis, abortionists. The only place from which we can even begin to comprehend the evil in this world and the answer is to have a downcast face, but not a downcast face like Cain, but like the tax collector in Jesus' story. Do you remember what he prayed? The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, Cain's face fell because God saw through his little self-justification project. The tax collector couldn't lift his eyes to heaven because of his sin. And he was justified because of his faith in God's mercy to sinners. And I believe that's all wrapped up in Abel's, Abel's acceptable sacrifice. His faith, in, his faith in the, it's, it's a very real faith in this faint but rock-solid future promise of one who would crush the serpent's head. That's all he really knew. At least that's all we read at this point in Scripture. That's the only promise he had. And he was clinging to it. And by faith, he offered this sacrifice. He knew that all the wrong ushered into the world by the fall would be undone by this promised Redeemer. I'm going to share the rest of what Calvin said about this because it just is, it's so good and helpful. He says, But this is true worship. To offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices to God. When God sees such hypocrisy combined with grand and obvious mockery of himself, it is not surprising that he hates it and is unable to bear it, which is why he rejects with contempt the works of those who withdraw themselves from him. For it is his will first to have us devoted to himself. He then seeks our works in testimony of our obedience to him, but only in the second place. It is to be remarked that all the ways by which men mock both God and themselves are the fruits of unbelief. And to this is added pride, because unbelievers, despising the mediator's grace, throw themselves fearlessly into the presence of God, whether in worship or just going about their business, thinking, I'm okay, everything's okay, God doesn't see, God doesn't know. Fearlessly putting themselves in the presence of God. And he goes on to explain the real difference between Cain and Abel's sacrifice. He says, the Jews thinking about the Talmud and some of their commentary on this passage. He says, The Jews foolishly imagined that Cain's offerings were unacceptable because he he stole from God the full ears of corn and offered him just half-filled ears, kind of the scraggly you know, ears of corn from his field. What he's saying is not about the gift, it's about the heart of the giver. Deeper and more hidden, Calvin says, deeper and more hidden was the evil, namely that impurity of heart of which I have been speaking. Just as, on the other hand, the strong scent of burning fat could not earn divine favor for the sacrifices of Abel. But being pervaded by the good odor of faith, they had a sweet-smelling savor. Pervaded by the good odor of faith. That's the issue here. The good odor of faith, that's what gave Abel's sacrifice this sweet-smelling savor. But the selfish spirit of Cain just wants to save face. And God has no time for that. Well, there's another thing we see about this selfish spirit of Cain in the story. First, just wants to save face, just wants to do the ostensibly right thing. And second, the selfish spirit of Cain waves off God's warnings. 
Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This part of the story can be a little confusing at first glance, uh, which is probably why it's not what comes to mind right away when we remember the story of Cain and Abel. I don't know about you, but I tend to think of the story as the sacrifices, Cain's anger, kills his brother, God's judgment. But we can't overlook in this these two verses the incredible mercy of God in warning Cain about the nature of sin and about the need to do battle with his sin. In, in words that seem to recall the, the scheming serpent that slithers into the garden, God warns Cain, not about a, 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 another tempter who will come from the outside, but about their, the danger within his own heart. When man was created in perfect righteousness and holiness, uh, evil was an outside problem. But now it's an in-me problem. James 1, 14 and 15 says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, God mercifully warns Cain about the dangers of unbelief and sin. So whether it's the danger of self-righteousness, this religiosity that Cain was showing, or just brazen wickedness, the end result is the same. The wages of sin is death. So what can Cain do? He can cling by faith to the promise like Abel. The gift of God that's eternal life in Christ Jesus, even in that small, shadowy promise. The promised Redeemer. Or he can wave off God's warning to his own peril. So let me ask you this this morning as we think about this. As we see God's heart in coming to Cain, someone who he knows will ultimately be unrepentant. God knows the rest of the story. But he comes to Cain in mercy. Let me ask you, are you showing the mercy of Christ to others by warning them about the wages of their sin? It's not popular to talk about sin. It's not popular to bring that up to people. It's not popular to show them what God's law requires of us and how we're guilty of breaking it. But it's merciful. We must imitate our merciful God by speaking clearly and directly to the problem of sin. And not first in condemnation. The judgment comes later in the story. But first, there's a merciful call to repentance. So if there's something I think we should use to find our bearings, even in these last few weeks, this crazy moment we're living in, when righteous anger and indignation, rightly so, can sometimes crowd out our full picture of God, it's right here. It's seeing the order of this story. It's seeing how the events unfold and how God reveals his heart, even for the sinner. He first extends a merciful warning before judgment. God says there's a way to be accepted in his sight. If you do well, will you not be accepted? I'm not saying if you do the right things, if you check the right boxes. If you live by faith, will you not be accepted? There's a way to be received, to be welcomed, to be forgiven, to be loved. And that's the good news we preach in the pulpit, over the kitchen table with our children, over lunch with our coworkers, in public settings, as often as God gives us the opportunity. And as we warn people, like like John Bunyan's uh, uh, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, waving around his book like a crazy person, saying, flee from the wrath to come. Everybody thought he was nuts. But that's that's what we do. That That's merciful. That's gracious. And that's showing the heart of God, even as we wrestle with what can be utter wickedness. Flee from the wrath to come. But what happens? Cain doesn't flee. He doesn't fight sin with faith. He waves off God's warning. His jealousy gets the better of him. Verse 8. 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. So the selfish spirit of Cain wants to save face. And it wants to wave, it waves off God's warning. But thirdly, we see a third thing. The selfish spirit of Cain worries about worldly repercussions rather than worship. So at this point, Cain finds himself standing before the judge. God's court has been convened in this section of the story. And in shocking defiance, Cain refuses to repent. He refuses to repent. Cain, where is your brother? It's a similar question to Genesis 3.9, right? Where are you? And it occurs to me that maybe as we read this story, as we read some of these early stories, really throughout throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, we're used to this. We're used to God showing up and speaking to the person. And it just seems like a Bible story kind of thing. It seems like something we just expect to happen. Uh, but we think maybe that's more of a Bible thing than a real life thing. And we can kind of get that, uh, that, that crossed in our mind. Just as surely as God saw and searched out hearts in the pages of Scripture, He sees and searches out hearts today. Derek Kidner calls this God's perennially, perennially searching inquiry of man. Adam, where are you? Cain, where is your brother? God still questions hearts, and he still brings justice. What does Cain say? He answers, I do not know. It's adding a lie to his, his murder, right? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? We can only imagine what, what might have happened. Right? What would have happened? I mean, Cain is at a crossroads here. The question seems to me like final God's final extension of mercy. Where is your brother? And Cain's at this crossroads. Will he choose his own sin or will he own his sin? Will he, will he choose to confess and, and own up to what he's done or will he continue his hard-hearted rebellion? Well, we know what he does. He lies. He's sarcastic to God, if you can believe it. Uh, Abel is a keeper of sheep. That's how the story started. Am I the keeper's keeper? Just utter disregard for the God of the universe, judge of all the earth standing before him. Utter defiance. So verse 10, judgment arrives. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is harsh judgment, and it's really a picture of final judgment. Wandering on the earth, working in futility, living in fear, never finding any compassion shown towards you, never finding rest. That's the present life for Cain, but that's eternity for all who are unrepentant. Not on earth, but in exile from God, away from his presence, which the story kind of highlights at the end. Confined to eternal suffering and judgment and wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And John, in his first letter, he connects Cain even more closely with Satan himself. When he writes in 1 John 3.12, he says, We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. What we see in this is that it's highlighted even after judgment has been pronounced on Cain. He still has no concern for the fact that he's offended a holy God. 
His only concern, his fatal error, is that even after receiving the sentence, his rock-hard heart isn't concerned about how he's offended a holy God. He's just worried about all of the worldly repressions. He's unhappy with the punishment, but not repentant about failing to worship God. Verse 13, Cain says to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. You would think if you kill a relative to everybody living on earth, you might think that through. Um, but there's there's no reasonableness in Cain. He's He is completely and utterly darkened by his sin. And the Lord says to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord puts a gracious, in some ways, mark on Cain. He says, Lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And there's a lot here, but just I think the heart of this, what we need to see here, is how utterly unrepentant Cain is. He's grieving over the sentence, not over his lack of worship, not over his offense to God. And you know the selfish spirit of Cain is alive and well in your own heart when you're more worried about the worldly repercussions of your sin than having offended God. Will I get audited if I just move these numbers around a little? Uh, will I get fired if someone steps in my office and I'm looking at that on my computer? Will I get pulled over if you know I just have one more with my friends tonight? And the thinking larger scale, uh, we live in a world where the only grief over our actions are just the social and political ramifications. Or if I do this or say that or reveal my hand about whatever it is, what will the blowback be? What's, what's going to be the fallout? That's selfish. That's worldly grief. Repentance is worship. Repentance sees how we've offended a holy God. Repentance seeks to, to rectify that in faith and repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So the selfish spirit of Cain wants to save face. It waves off God's warnings. It worries about worldly repercussions rather than worship. And that's the spirit that's alive and well. It's the spirit that we see around us. It's the spirit that we still do battle with within us. But what's the answer? What's the hope for all the Cains of the world? What's the hope for Cains like us? What's the message of grace that we have to declare to a world dying in unrepentance? It's the selfless, sprinkled blood of Christ. I'm going to be brief here because this table we're about to celebrate together really continues this wonderful good news of God's solution for this selfish spirit of Cain. But I want to go back to something we really didn't settle on in the story and show you what the New Testament says about it. Verse 10, you remember, he says, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's a staggering statement if you think about it. Not one drop of blood spilled by murderers in this world goes unnoticed by God, the judge of all the earth. Not one limb torn from limb in an American abortion clinic. Not one blackened eye on the face of a Chinese Christian sitting in an interrogation room. Not one beheaded body lying in the Syrian sand. Luther says, Just as these words have been written for our comfort, so they have been written to fill our adversaries with terror. What, in your opinion, is more awe-inspiring for those tyrants to hear than that the blood of those whom they have slain cries and incessantly accuses them before God? God is indeed long-suffering, especially now near the end of the world. 
Therefore, sin rests for a longer time. Vengeance does not follow immediately. But it surely is true that God is most profoundly outraged by this sin and will never allow it to go unpunished. That's good news. That's good news for those of us longing for justice. It's terrible news for the perpetrators of injustice. But there's another murder that should make us all tremble. It's the murder of which we are all guilty. And that's the murder on a hill outside of Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ bled out in agony on Golgotha. Luther also said, we all carry about in our pockets Christ's very nails. But we don't have to tremble at that because we have the good news of what that blood speaks for our forgiveness, for our pardon, for our redemption. For those clinging to the promised one in whom Abel believed by faith, there's good news. Hebrews 12, 22-24. You, Christian, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Have you heard the hymn by Isaac Watts? It says, blood has a voice to pierce the skies. Revenge the blood of Abel cries. But the dear stream when Christ, when Christ was slain speaks peace as loud from every vein. Pardon and peace from God on high. Behold, he lays his vengeance by and rebels that deserved his sword become the favorites of the Lord. To Jesus let our praises rise, who gave his life a sacrifice. Now he appears before his God and for our pardon pleads his blood. You see, God's answer to the selfish spirit of Cain is the selfless, sacrificial, sprinkled blood of Christ received by faith for forgiveness and life. That's our hope. That's our message. That's how we make sense of the problem in this world and God's solution. It's the blood that we celebrate, the blood we receive by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning, may this blood that pleads for pardon instead of vengeance be our hope in this world that seems darker, bloodier than ever. And may the message of grace that this blood proclaims be heard and received, so that side by side with even the worst of sinners, we can praise Jesus together for freeing us all from the selfish spirit of Cain by the selfless, sprinkled blood of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.